Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. We have finished our deep dive into the text of the Declaration of Independence, and now we are exploring the 56 men who signed the document. The last couple of episodes, we took a bit of a detour. Our penultimate episode coincided with Independence Day, so we re-released an episode about the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. Our last episode explored Thomas Jefferson's draft of the Declaration presented to Congress on June 28, 1776, versus the final engrossed version presented for signature on August 2, 1776. And now we return to Part 4 of the Signers. Like Parts 1 through 3, we will hear from the signers themselves in the first person, and each signer will speak to us, not in 1776, but after they have ascended to paradise. Naturally, their personalities, ghostly as they may be, continue to resonate throughout the ages. Let's face it, most people can only name a few of the brave men who autographed the Declaration and the risk and sacrifices they endured to establish a new, free republic. Some argue that the founders were motivated by greed and power, sent others to fight for them, and grew rich because of the war. This is a twisted mockery of history. Many of the signers risked their lives, some narrowly escaped death, others lost their children in battle, some were imprisoned, more than several had their fortunes ruined, but they all maintained their sacred honor. With maybe one exception we will be exploring today. We are setting the historical record straight. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. We have already addressed the first 36 signers as they appear on the engrossed version of the Declaration of Independence, which was signed by the Continental Congress on August 2nd, 1776. Remember, we are going in the order of the signatures with John Hancock on top and the remaining 55 by columns, starting with the far left column and moving over to the far right. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up. A cautionary warning, the sources often disagree on details sometimes involving really basic facts, where there appears to be a prevailing view or where there is a disagreement, but I possess a well-grounded, educated opinion, the spirits relate the prevailing view or my informed opinion. If there is an important unsolved mystery, the particular signer may comment that you will have to wait until you meet him or somebody else at the pearly gates. Now let's continue. I am most pleased and humbled to introduce Lewis Morris. Thank you so much, dear Judge Warren. Now, before we begin with my story, I want to thank Michelle Garin for her generous monthly donation to this very podcast. Others who do the same in the future would definitely be thanked in kind. I am Lewis Morris. I was born on April 8th, 1726, the oldest son of the second lord of the manor of Morrisania in Westchester County, New York. That is the fair borough of Brooklyn to you. Now, my ancestor, Richard Morris, left England around the time of the Stuart Restoration of 1660, and he was granted several thousand acres in Westchester and built Morrisania. Included in my direct ancestors from Richard Morris were a Chief Justice of New York, a Governor of New Jersey, a Judge of the Vice-Admiralty Court, Chief Justice of New Jersey, and Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania. I attended that eminent college, Yale, and graduated in 1746. 
I then helped manage Morisania with my father. When my dear father departed his earthly bonds in 1762, I inherited Morisania. In 1769, I was elected to the New York House of Burgesses. And one of my biographers, a certain Mr. Charles August Goodrich, described me as thus. As he entered upon manhood, he seems to have possessed everything which naturally commands the respect and attracts the admiration of men. His person was of lofty stature and of fine proportions, imparting his presence of uncommon dignity, softened, however, by disposition unusually generous and benevolent, and by a demeanor so graceful that few could fail do him homage. Now who am I to argue with Mr. Goodrich? Of course, being among the elite of New York, I had little incentive to jeopardize my position by opposing the Empire. I became politically aware and very vocal when the Empire requisitioned money to pay for the troops they stationed in New York. It was not the money that was the issue. The Colonial Assembly of New York refused to approve the tax, and the Crown imposed it anyway. Now this clearly violated our rights, and that was just the start. The British continued a long train of abuses and usurpations in a wide range of affairs. I understand that you have become well acquainted with the 27 grievances in the Declaration of Independence, so you understand what I mean. Despite my privileged position, my honor and integrity could not bear this state of affairs. I rallied against British oppression. My region was decidedly loyalist, and my sentiments against British oppression were too robust for my fellow New Yorkers. They refused to send me to the First Continental Congress. Despite this refusal to send me to Congress, I could not stand idle. I broke with the majority and organized a meeting at White Plains, New York, to choose delegates to New York's first provincial convention. I served as the county's chairman, and the New York Provincial Convention elected me to the Second Continental Congress, where I served from 1775 to 1777. I served on a committee chaired by George Washington, tasked with the exceedingly difficult and important work of obtaining military supplies. I was also dispatched to negotiate with Native Americans with the object of persuading them to abandon the British, and I even travelled to the far outpost of Pittsburgh in furtherance of this important mission. When Congress voted to approve the Declaration of Independence, I was absent. I had my hands full serving as a brigadier general in the New York militia. It mattered not. As you know, when the vote was taken on July 2nd, New York had not yet empowered our delegation to vote for independence. In fact, I played a more vital role than seems obvious. While stationed in New York, my considerable influence helped sway our convention to finally authorize our congressional delegation to cast our support for independence. Thus, New York's delegates approved the declaration on July 9th, and with much satisfaction I signed the declaration when I returned to Congress in September 1776. By doing so, I put everything at risk. I had considerable property in New York, and British troops were occupying large swaths of our newly declared independent state. My home was easily within cannon shot of the British. 
Contrary to the vile suggestions of some of your contemporaries, I was not some rich so-and-so who rode the backs of the lower classes to fight for liberty. Certainly not. I put my life on the line by serving as a brigadier general in the Westchester County Militia. The British turned their ire on me and my family by ravaging my home, Morrisania, and my family had to flee from the onslaught. My woodlands were destroyed for firewood and for the fun of it. My fences were ruined, my farm wasted, my livestock slaughtered to feed the British, or otherwise just let loose. My home was ruined, and my slaves and other tenants ran away. I not once complained in public. Meanwhile, three of my sons took up arms against the British— one served as an aide-de-camp to General Sullivan and later General Green. Another was aide-de-camp to Charles Lee. And the third served as a lieutenant of artillery. They all served valiantly. Uh, true, my career in Congress was short as it ended in 1777. But that was just the beginning of my public service. I was promoted to Major General in the militia, and I served as a county judge from 1777 to 1778, and as a state senator from 1777 to 1781, and again from 1784 to 1788. I also gave my time as a board member on the first board of regents for the University of New York, and served in that capacity until my death. I served in New York's convention to consider ratification of the proposed federal constitution and strongly supported its ratification. Fittingly, I served as presidential elector in 1796, casting my votes for John Adams and Thomas Pickney, who, of course, won. I married in 1749. My wife and I were amazingly productive with ten children, six sons and four daughters. My half-brother was Governor Morris, who played a very important role in the Federal Constitutional Convention. And I left this earth on January 22nd, 1798. As a wealthy landowner, I could have sat by comfortably and taken the side of the English Empire, but instead I gambled it all. My sons and I risked our lives with service in the military. My home was ravaged, and my extensive land holdings were grievously harmed. I have no regrets, because, most important, I preserved my sacred honor. And having said that, I have, well, mixed feelings about introducing you to Mr. Richard Stockton, and you will understand why. Well, I never. Yes, I'm Richard Stockton. Much obliged. I was born on October 1st, 1730, at my father's family estate in Morven in Princeton, New Jersey. My great-grandfather, for whom I was named, came to New York and originally settled on Long Island, New York, between 1660 and 1670, and then settled in New Jersey. In New Jersey, we had thousands of acres, helping to establish a newest settlement in the area, which now constitutes Princeton. My father was a judge and quite wealthy, and he donated the land upon which the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University, would be built. In any event, I attended a renowned academy, learning from the accomplished Reverend Dr. Samuel Finley at West Nottingham. 
I graduated from Princeton in 1748 and began to study law under the Honorable David Ogden of New York, the leader of the New Jersey Bar. I was admitted to the Bar in 1754 and was honored with the title of Sergeant at Law in 1763. You haven't heard of that title? How unfortunate. In essence, it was the highest distinction for lawyers in English courts. My keen intellect and reasoning established a superb reputation. My eminence was known not just in the colonies, but in the seat of the empire in England. When I visited there beginning in 1766 for nearly a year and a half, I was received by many high-ranking officials, including the Earl of Chatham and, most famously, the Marquis of Rockingham. He was the Prime Minister. I was solicited by many politicians for my advice on American affairs. The city of Edinburgh in Scotland hosted a dinner in my honor. I met Reverend Dr. Witherspoon there, who had just declined an appointment as the president of Princeton College. Undeterred, I spent some serious and intense time discussing the merits of accepting the opportunity. In fact, I charmed him into changing his mind, which had a major ripple effect in American history and the cause of freedom. Indeed, you will hear from him next. My trip to Europe was not without danger. While in Edinburgh, a vicious robber attacked me, and I defended myself with my short sword and wounded him. When I decided to cross the Irish Channel, my trip was delayed when my baggage arrived late. I consider this to be divine intervention. You see, the ship that I was to have taken across the Channel sunk with not a single survivor. When I returned to New Jersey, in addition to practicing law, I bred cattle and horses, collected art, and grew my beloved library. I took my first official foray into public service when I was chosen to serve on the Royal Executive Council of New Jersey and a royal judge in 1768. I was elevated to the Supreme Court in 1774. Despite all these honors and pontifications, when England's tyranny became evident, I sided with the patriots. My honor would not allow me to serve in any capacity that counted my conscience. I left the Royal Executive Council and stood up for American liberties. As early as 1764, I advocated for the then bold position that the colonies should be represented in Parliament. During the Stamp Act crisis that erupted the next year, I started to move to a more radical position by doubting whether Parliament had any authority whatsoever over the colonies. I was elected to the Second Continental Congress in 1776. Originally, I was a bit hesitant to support independence during the July debate, but soon I was convinced to toss caution into the wind. After all, John Adams' speech was not just remarkable, it stunned us into silence. I was one of the several men that the Colossus of Independence swayed to the side of independence. Not only that, after my conversion, I spoke in its favor. I was proud to sign the Declaration. Was it on August 2nd or another time? You will have to ask in the great beyond. In the election for governor of New Jersey, I gained the most votes. But so did someone else. Eventually, the tie was broken in my opponent's favor. I was then elected as Chief Justice, but I declined, rather serving in the Second Continental Congress. After visiting the Army in the North, I returned only to be forced to move my family to avoid the British Army. Before I did so, I worked to supply the local American troops with food, clothing, and supplies. On November 30th, 1776, I placed my family in what I thought would be a refuge at a friend's house about 30 miles from a home in Mammoth County. 
This proved to be a phantom hope. I was hauled out of bed while I was sleeping by loyalist and British troops. I was viciously tossed into the jail at Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and then carted off to the Provost Prison in New York. Why? Because I signed the Declaration. I was poorly fed and kept in cold conditions. When Congress learned of my ill treatment, they threatened General Howe to start treating British prisoners similarly. He relented and I was soon released in a prisoner exchange. My friend and fellow signer of the Declaration, John Witherspoon, wrote that it was not Congress's and Washington's resolve that garnered my release, but that I signed a capitulation renouncing my adherence to the revolution and instead pledged allegiance to the king. You see, General William Howe and Admiral Lord Richard Howe were circulating pardons for men who would renounce the revolution and pledge fealty to the king. Was Rutherspoon right or a damn scoundrel to write this? You will have to ask us in Xanadu. To dispel lingering doubts about my loyalty to America, I swore fealty to the American cause once again in December 1777. But the horrid imprisonment experience ruined my constitution, and I basically became an invalid. Meanwhile, the British destroyed my home, burned my library on papers, and drove away my livestock. The continental currency I accepted as a true patriot became nearly worthless. I was rendered all but a beggar. Even as I somewhat recovered from my imprisonment, a malignant tumor, a cancer, latched onto my lip and throat. I perished on February 28, 1781, an all but broken man. My wife was the most excellent and famous poet, Annis Baudinat, and we had two sons and four daughters. One of my daughters, Julia, married fellow declaration signer Dr. Benjamin Rush. My sacrifices were deep and severe. I was imprisoned. My health was ruined. My home was trashed. My wealth ruined. Of course, if you believe that I renounce the American Revolution in exchange for my freedom, you have cause to doubt whether I maintained my honor. Putting aside the truth of the charge, I'd like to see what you would do under similar circumstances, starving in a cold prison, feeling your life slipping away. We can discuss this at great length at the Pearly Gates if you get there. I am most honored to introduce you to Mr. John Witherspoon. Much obliged, Mr. Stockton. I am indeed John Witherspoon. I was brought upon this green earth in Yester Parish, just a few wee miles away from the heart of Scotland, that being Edinburgh, on February 5th, 1722. One of my ancestors was the eminent Scottish reformer John Knox, and my father was the minister of Yester Parish. My father was well known for his piety and learning in the great world of literature. I attended a common school at Haddington, and then at the tender age of 14, I went to the University of Edinburgh. I finished my studies at the age of 21 and was quite an accomplished student, especially in theological studies. My degrees were a Master of Arts and Divinity. I declined to serve alongside my father at his church and instead became a minister for the parish of Beath in the west of Scotland and here I was ordained and remained. In 1757, I moved on to become a minister in the town of Paisley. My reputation as an elegant, 
inspirational and knowledgeable preacher soon spread throughout Scotland and indeed across the ocean. One of my sermons, Trial of Religious Truth by Its Moral Influence, was printed as a pamphlet and became fabulously popular in the colonies. Still, I was quite content to live my days in Scotland. I was very comfortable in means and respect. I had no other aspirations. But the Almighty had different plans for my fate. In 1766, I was selected President of the College of New Jersey, that is, Princeton. As you have heard from Mr. Stockton, I was reluctant to accept the appointment. In fact, my wife was quite opposed to leaving our home, where we were comfortable and held in high esteem, to cross the ocean to settle in a foreign land. When word spread that America was calling for me, I was offered several other plum positions in my homeland, and one unmarried gentleman even offered to make me his heir if I would just stay put in Scotland. But Mr. Stockton, with some assistance from Dr. Benjamin Rush, charmed me into accepting the appointment and start a new adventure. I arrived in America in 1768, less than ten years before the Declaration of Independence. The college was in decline, having lost students and finances. Thankfully, my reputation spurred new admissions and considerable donations from across the continent, and fortunes of the institution became very secure. More important, our academic institution was improved substantially for two separate reasons. First, being a scholar of the first order, my personal attentions to the teaching of our students immediately improved their fund of knowledge. Second, my leadership improved the teaching of the entire faculty. Indeed, I spent considerable effort elevating the curricula of the college with several innovations on American soil. These included focusing on mathematics, enlightenment philosophies, general principles of policy, public law, history, and writing. As skies darkened with British tyranny, I could not remain silent. I condemned Great Britain's tyrannical actions in a commencement speech. I so despised British oppression that this became a prominent thread in my sermons and writings. Under my wing, patriotism flourished on campus. Whig Hall and Clio Hall became breeding grounds for new patriots. James Madison and Aaron Burr are just two of the leading patriots that came of age under my tenure. My anti-British position was rewarded with my election to the New Jersey Provincial Legislature in 1774. I also served on local committees of correspondence. I wrote another popular tract, Thoughts on American Liberty, which condemned British tyranny. Here is a small sample. There is not the least reason to think that either the king, the parliament, or even the people of Great Britain have been able to enter 
into the great principles of universal liberty, or are willing to hear the discussion of the point of right without prejudice. It seems, rather, that they mean to force us to be absolute slaves. Therefore, the great object of the approaching Congress should be to unite the colonies and make them as one body in any measure of self-defense to assure the people of Great Britain that we will not submit voluntarily and convince them that it would be either impossible or unprofitable for them to compel us by open violence. The next year, I actively helped the New Jersey Assembly resist British oppression. With the outbreak of the American Revolution, I moved forward with yet another adventure. The students of our college were dispersed and our operations stopped. When New Jersey established a convention to create a constitution, I was elected as a delegate. I also led the movement to depose our loyalist governor, William Franklin. Yes, Mr. Benjamin Franklin's traitorous estranged son. Once we were rid of Franklin, I was elected to the Second Continental Congress in 1776 and joined the Assembly on June 29, 1776, just before our debate concerning Richard Henry Lee's Resolution of Independence. I strongly supported independence and the Declaration. When one delegate argued on July 2nd, 1776, that we were not yet ripe for independence, I bellowed, Sir, in my judgment, the country is not only ripe, but rotting. I voted in favor of independence and signed the Declaration on August 2nd. I was the only active minister among all 56 signers. I maintained my seat in Congress for seven years. I was known for a keen intellect and indefatigable energy. I listened to all arguments and then determined my position in connection with controversies. I carefully crafted and then memorized my speeches, delivering them with great effect. I served on a number of committees, including the Board of War and the Secret Committee of Correspondence, which was responsible for collecting intelligence via foreign correspondence. I participated in the debates about the Articles of Confederation, and I signed them. In 1779, I retired from Congress. This proved short-lived. I was re-elected in 1781. I again retired at the end of the year. In 1783, although I was skeptical of the mission, I traveled back to Scotland and England to raise funds for the college. I spent much of my post-congressional time trying to rebuild my beloved Princeton, but it never really came back to its pre-war apex while I lived. I also served in the New Jersey legislature and in the New Jersey convention that ratified the federal constitution. Despite the duties of public office, I also continued 
my ministerial duties for my flock. On the theological front, I was instrumental in reorganizing the American Presbyterian Church. I chaired its first reorganized General Assembly in 1789. In my personal relations, I was quite imposing. Some said I was the only person in America who could compare to George Washington, including awing those in my presence. Still, I was known to be quite affable. Like our Mr. Lincoln, I loved telling stories and anecdotes. I also developed quite a reputation for insightful wit. <laughs> One example will suffice. During the American Revolution, General Horatio Gates won a tremendous victory against the English army at Saratoga. Gates sent an aide to inform us of this most important turn of events. The messenger took his time, more than his time, and we learned about the victory an entire three days before the aide arrived. Now, on such occasions, the messenger was usually presented with a ceremonial gift for bringing such good tidings. In accordance with this tradition, a motion was made in Congress to provide the aide with an elegant sword. Well, I could not let this affront stand. I rose and moved to amend the motion to replace the sword with, yes, a pair of golden spurs. <laughs> In any event, I was well known for being an excellent mentor and tender friend. I married Elizabeth Montgomery in Scotland in 1748. We had ten children, but only three sons and two daughters survived to adulthood. My eldest son, James, died in the Battle of Germantown, such a terrible sacrifice to the altar of liberty, and my beloved Princeton was ransacked and put to the torch by the British Army, and hundreds, if not thousands of books I personally brought from Scotland or otherwise donated to the college were utterly ruined. After my first wife passed on, I married a second time at the age of 70, or was it 68? I was very fortunate. My blushing bride was just 23 or maybe 24. The sources differ. If you are truly curious, you can ask her in the city of God. We had two children, but one died as an infant. Unfortunately, my health started to give away, as did my eyesight. Still, I continued to preach, being assisted to the pulpit. Even so, my sermons were as powerful as ever. The Blessed Savior received me when I was 74 years of age, in 1794, on November 15th. Oh, or was it November 10th? You will have to ask me in heaven. I left the comforts for Scotland and soon became a leading patriot against the empire. My son was sacrificed on the altar of liberty, as was my beloved Princeton. I kept my sacred honor. I am most privileged to introduce Mr. Francis Hopkinson.
Thank you, my dear Reverend Witherspoon. I am indeed Francis Hopkinson. I was born in the city of Philadelphia on September 21st, 1737. My father was an Englishman who married the daughter of the Bishop of Worcester. Or was it his niece? Well, in any event, my father came to America, but exactly when has been lost to history? Of course, you can ask him to clear up these mysteries in the promised land when you get there. Either way, my family settled in Philadelphia when my father became a man of great repute, holding various government offices and delving into amazing scientific experiments with electricity, even sharing his findings with Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Unfortunately, my father was snatched away by the Grim Reaper in the prime of his life when I was just fought years old. My poor mother was left with the unenviable task of raising our family alone. Understanding that I was academically talented, my mother performed manual labour and otherwise sacrificed to ensure that I would obtain an exemplary education. Her efforts succeeded. I graduated from the College of Philadelphia, which is now part of the University of Pennsylvania. After graduation, I studied law under Pennsylvania's Attorney General Benjamin Chu, and four years later I entered the legal profession in 1765. In addition to that noble art, I excelled at science, mathematics, music, poetry, and painting. I built a keyboard for Benjamin Franklin and specialized in the harpsichord and the organ. I was naturally a composer of music. I may have a first for my quill, perhaps the first American secular song, called My Days Had Been So Wondrous Free, which I composed in 1759. I may also have a second first. In 1781, I wrote what many calculate was the first American opera, called The Temple of Minerva. In light of these accomplishments, I believe I should be considered the first national composer. And some contemporaries and scholars disagree, but what do they know? I think it's a worthy title for me. Plus, I possessed an amazing library filled with classics, philosophy, and many scientific works, as well as many scientific instruments. In addition, I was fun. I was said to possess a nearly unparalleled sense of humor and satire. I became the custom collector in New Salem, New Jersey in 1763. In 1766, I travelled to England and stayed for a year or two, and upon my return, I settled in Philadelphia and operated a store. In 1768, I was appointed customs collector in Newcastle, Delaware, and executive counsellor. In 1774, I moved to Bordentown, New Jersey to practice law and began serving in the New Jersey legislature. As British oppressions became plainly known, I determined to oppose the empire with manly firmness. Beginning in 1774, I wrote many influential pro-liberty pamphlets, essays, and letters, many of which were full of sarcasm and ridicule. Others were allegorical. One such work, The Prophecy, was written before the Declaration of Independence, prognosticated that we would indeed become independent. I lost my royal office because of this opposition, but I was delighted to sacrifice that post for the cause of liberty. 
Now, in 1776, New Jersey appointed me to the Second Continental Congress, and I voted for Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence and signed the engrossed copy of the Declaration of Independence. As the American Revolution raged, I employed my satirical talent by penning several biting poems, which were well-received and quite persuasive. But... I paid a high price for my opposition. My home, Bordentown, was invaded by Hessian mercenaries, and it was plundered savagely. I later served as treasurer of loans in the Treasury Department for several years, and accordingly I served on one of the committees that worked to establish the Great Seal of the United States. And that seal, in case you can't envision it at the moment, includes an eagle— stars above its head with a shield and its talons clutching an olive branch with thirteen arrows. My committee contributed the six-pointed stars above the eagle's head, the olive branch, and the shield emblazoned with stars and stripes. I personally sketched out designs for the seals of the Treasury, the Board of Admiralty, U.S. currency, a naval flag, and a United States flag. Now, there is a bit of controversy about the flag that I sketched. Like the current United States flag, it had alternating red and white stripes and a union of blue in the upper left-hand corner emblazoned with stars. I proposed six pointed stars in staggered rows, but they were eventually made into five pointed stars in a circle. Now, this, of course, is identified as the Betsy Ross flag and there is a small cottage industry regarding the true origin of the flag, pitting Betsy Ross versus Francis Hopkinson. And that's me, now, versus Congress, and I will not put that industry out of business. I do concede that I did ask Congress for a quarter cask of wine for payment for designing the flag, and Congress... Well, they refused, saying that it was part of my job with the Treasury. And, well, I say to the most eminent Betsy Ross that Congress acknowledged me and not you as having rendered services for creating the flag. (laughs) Amazing how the daggers fly out of her eyes when I say that. (laughs) But we are not on speaking terms, even here in Elysium. Yes, well, it's not all quite kumbaya, you know. And, well, as if the foregoing services were not enough, I also served as an admiralty court judge for Pennsylvania for ten years. After the Constitution was ratified in 1790, George Washington nominated me, and I was confirmed by the new Senate as a federal district court judge located in the state of Pennsylvania. But, unfortunately, when I was but fifty-three years of age, my dear Lord called me home. It was a bit painful, for I ascended only after I fell into a two-hour-long apoplectic fit, and I left behind my dearest wife and five children. Now, like many of my fellow signers, my home suffered grave damage because of my support for the Declaration. Thankfully, I was not imprisoned or threatened with death, but, of course, I understood that that was certainly possible, having signed the death warrant otherwise— called the Declaration of Independence. With many years of public service, I indeed maintained my sacred honor. 
And now I am most humbled to introduce to you Mr. John Hart. Many thanks, Mr. Hopkinson. I love the flag, by the way. Still, I'm pretty sure Betsy Ross had something to do with the stars, having five points, and perhaps a circle on the flag. Mr. Hopkinson, no need to point those daggers at me. I am John Hart, and I am much delighted to meet you. I was brought into this world in 1711, the fall of 1713, or perhaps 1714, or maybe at some other time altogether, at Hopewell, in the county of Huntington, of New Jersey. Well, unless you believe that I was born in Stonington, Connecticut. You seem to have a somewhat quizzical look. Perhaps you would think my birthday and location would be better ascertained. Well, I, of course, was not conscious of my birth, and the records are completely absent. And the exact date and time and place, once you arrive in Swagger, you have to ask my father, Edward Hart, or my dear mother. Like many of his generation, my father was an Englishman at Hart, and in 1759, he raised a volunteer corps troop dubbed the Jersey Blues, who helped attack Quebec in the French and Indian War. Now, on the other hand, some people say that the Jersey Boys were true to their moniker and never left New Jersey. You can ask my dear father in Shangri-La. Now, I love my father, and he passed on to me a large farming estate to which I added. I also owned grist, fooling, and sawmills. I was known for wisdom and honesty and sound judgment, and unlike modern time, those traits were sought after for in public service. Accordingly, I was elected to the New Jersey Colonial Assembly. My legislative efforts substantially assisted my homeland in developing new roads and bridges, improving education, and bettering the administration of justice. Although I had no formal education or higher education at all, I served as Justice of the Peace, County Judge, and a judge of the New Jersey Court of Common Pleas. My nickname was Honest John Hart, and I often resolved local disputes with a Solomon-like disposition. Being a strong Christian, I generously supported our local Baptist Church of Hopewell, including helping to fund the erection of new public house of worship. My fellow signer of the Declaration of Independence, Dr. Benjamin Rush, accurately reflected that I was a plain, honest, well-meaning Jersey farmer with but little education, but with good sense and virtue enough to pursue the true interest of his country. I find those remarks to be among the highest compliments a man could be given. When British oppressions began to raise their ugly head, especially the Stamp Act, I quickly sprung to defend our rights. I attended the Stamp Act Congress in 1765. I also served in the First Continental Congress and the Second Continental Congress. For a short spat of time, in 1775, I resigned from Congress, but was quickly elected to the Provencal Congress in New Jersey and served as its vice president. I also served on the Committee of Correspondence and Council of Safety. 
Unfortunately, the remaining New Jersey delegates to the Second Continental Congress were very reticent about declaring independence. This was unacceptable to the New Jersey Provincial Congress, and they were all replaced. As a zealous advocate for independence, I was alone re-elected. In late June 1776, I returned to Congress with four new members, all pro-independence. I was honored to approve the resolution for and declaration of independence and most pleased to sign the declaration at the appointed hour. I then returned to New Jersey, was elected to the First Assembly under our new Constitution, and was also elected the first Speaker of the House. I paid for my brave heart. I voted for independence knowing full well that my farm and home were within striking distance of our imperial enemy. When the British invaded New Jersey, they targeted not only me, but my family and my property. As they lurched toward my farm and house, my children ran away, but my dear wife, Deborah, was too ill to leave. I stayed with her until the last possible moment, and then I fled. Ironically, I understood that she would be safer if I was gone. We could hope that they would take pity on her in light of her affliction. My farm was pillaged, my mills badly damaged, my timber destroyed, and my livestock butchered to feed those damnable British troops. But the British, they weren't done, not by any means. Knowing I signed the declaration, they hunted me down like the object of a great hunt. I scrambled from place to place and was often hungry, dirty, and exhausted. I slept in caves, fields, and on Sound Mountain. One time I slept in a dog pen, and that very dog was my sleeping companion for the night. I could not sleep in two places two nights in a row. Otherwise, I was likely to be caught, if not slaughtered. Meanwhile, my wife died. Thank God not at the hands of the British, but from the disease that had laid her bedridden. Some say she died before I fled my home. You'll have to ask us in the land of milk and honey. The British abandoned New Jersey after the battles of Trenton and Princeton, and I was able to gather my children, return to my home, and try to repair the estate. I even hosted George Washington himself at my partially restored home and generously allowed 12,000 of his troops to camp on my property. Unfortunately, my trying flight permanently endangered my health, which began to fail most exceedingly at this point. Still, I was able to muster enough strength to serve once again in the New Jersey legislature and continued my position as Speaker. My dear Lord and Savior called me home in 1780. At least that is what my gravestone says. Others say it was on May 11th, 1779. Yet another mystery to resolve with me and my beautiful bride, Deborah. We had 13 children. I died in a dark period of the American Revolution, but I knew in my heart that we would prevail and that my dire sacrifices were the only true course for a man of honor. I am most pleased to introduce to you Mr. Abraham Clark.
Thank you, Mr. Hart. This is Abraham Clark, and I am overjoyed to make your acquaintance. I was born in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, on February 15, 1726. Or was it at Roselle, New Jersey? Ask my mother in the great beyond. I was the only child of my parents. I had little in what you would term a formal education. Although I was raised as a farmer, my physique was not so favorably disposed to the hardships of uh, agriculture, and I turned my attentions to surveying, buying and selling property, and the law. I never actually was admitted to the bar, but that did not hinder my progress in that field of endeavor. I gained the moniker the poor man's counselor, and I was apt to give legal advice for no charge to those less well-often than me. I gained a reputation for intellect and sound reasoning and became very popular throughout New Jersey. As such, I was trusted to fill various offices and met those duties with sterling success. Among these offices was Sheriff of Essex County and Clerk of the Colonial Legislature. As we approached our dissolution with Great Britain, I came firmly on the side of liberty. In 1774, I was elected to the New Jersey Provincial Congress and thereafter helped draft the new New Jersey Constitution. Then I was appointed to the Committee of Public Safety and served as its secretary. I was elected to the Second Continental Congress in late June 1776. Being of rather modest background, I was not favorably disposed to pomp and circumstance. I appreciated quick decisions and plain manners. I saw through bluster and cut to the chase and bone. The pretentiousness of lawyers often fell under my sharp comments. Fellow signer Dr. Benjamin Rush accurately remarked that I was a sensible but cynical man. He was uncommonly quick-sighted in seeing the weakness and defects of public men and measures. I voted in favor of Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence on July 2nd and then the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, and I signed the engrossed final copy on August 2nd. I knew this was perilous. New Jersey was in the sights of the British Army, but my honor could do nothing but resolved to buttress our independence. I reflected on the hazards we undertook when I wrote a letter a few days later to my friend Colonel Elias Drayton. As to my title, I know not whether it will be honorable or dishonorable. The issue of the war must settle it. Perhaps our Congress will be exalted on the high gallows. I assure you, sir, I see, I feel, the danger we are in. Like my fellow delegates from New Jersey, we were in the pathway of burning, pillaging, uncivilized British army assisted by vicious German mercenaries. Remarkably, my property escaped their savagery, but it dropped in value substantially since I could not attend to it. That hardly mattered. Much worse, my family suffered tremendously. Two or three of my sons, you will have to wait till you come to Arcadia to learn how many, were officers in the army. My son, Thomas, 
was taken prisoner and suffered in extreme distress while being held captive on Britain's terrible prison ship, Joyzy. This prison ship has been compared to a floating morgue full of dysentery, smallpox, and other fatal contagious diseases. The mortality rate was appalling, and dead prisoners were simply tossed overboard to sink in a ghastly, watery grave. My son, Aaron, was cast into a New York dungeon, ironically called the Sugar House, and faced even more dreadful circumstances. You see, he was not fed, except by fellow starving prisoners who had to resort to squeezing small morsels of food through the keyhole to his cell. Up until then, I was silent about the suffering of my sons, but this outrage provoked me to raise his gross maltreatment at the Congress. Being appalled, Congress instructed the army that a British officer, prisoner of war, should be treated in exactly the same fashion. The British relented under the retaliation. Some sources say my third son, Andrew, died on the prison ship Joyzy. Again, you'll have to wait to visit us in the castle in the clouds to learn the truth. Except for one time, I served in the Congress straight through 1783, when we finally concluded the War of Independence with the Treaty of Paris. Then I served in the New Jersey legislature until I was returned to Congress in 1788. My service was seen as a model of punctuality, integrity, and perseverance. While serving in the New Jersey legislature, I attended the Annapolis Convention in 1786, orchestrated by James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, which was a clarion call to convene a constitutional convention. It worked, and I was elected to the Constitutional Convention, but declined to sue it because of poor health. I originally opposed the adoption of the Constitution because of the lack of a Bill of Rights. Thankfully, I was well enough to be elected and serve in the second and third sessions of the new Congress under the Constitution. When Congress adjourned in the summer of 1794, I finally retired from public service. Unfortunately, with only enjoying a few months of retirement, the Lord of Hosts called me home on the fifth day of Patriot Week, that is, September 15, 1794, after I suffered a stroke, or possibly sunstroke, which is what I said it was when I fell ill. I was 69. My dazzling wife Sarah and I had 10 children. My gravestone fairly summarizes my career and sentiments. Furman decided as a patriot, zealous and faithful, as a friend of the public. He loved his country and adhered to her cause in the darkest hours of her struggles against oppression. I am most pleased to introduce Josiah Bartlett. With profound thanks, Mr. Clark, I am Josiah Bartlett, and I am most cheered to greet you. I came on this earth on November 21st, 1729 at Amsbury, Massachusetts. My mother was from Webster family. That is the same family that could lay to birth Daniel Webster. My father was a humble cobbler. I received a fine education as a child, but never entered the university. 
I began studying medicine when I was but 16 years old under the tutelage of Dr. Ordaway of Emsbury. I began practicing medicine after five years in 1750 in Kingston, New Hampshire. Ironically, I almost died from a grave fever just two years later, but through a self-concocted formula of cider, I was able to escape death's icy grip. Soon, I was heavily sought after a physician and gained a reputation of excellence as well as some property. In 1754, I discovered that canker could be cured by an application of Peruvian bark, which overcame that dreaded and often fatal affliction of the throat by fame sword. My first foray into public office was my election to the New Hampshire legislature in 1765. Soon enough, we became aware of the Stamp Act, and I became a most ardent foe of the royalist governor, who seemed intent on violating our God-given rights. To try to quiet my dissent, Governor John Wentworth appointed me as a justice of the peace. I took the position, but maintained my adversarial position. Governor Wentworth did not obtain peace from this justice of the peace. I also served as a commander of the militia. After the governor dissolved our colonial legislature for daring to establish a committee of correspondence to coordinate our resistance to the king and our fellow colonies, a convention was established to which I was elected. The convention elected me as one of the first two delegates of New Hampshire to the First Continental Congress in 1774. Unfortunately, my house had just burned down and I had to decline the appointment. Some suggest that I lost my house to loyalist arsonists, perhaps at the direction of the governor himself. I tend to believe it. I have searched in vain in heaven to question the governor. Perhaps he's not here. Still, I carried on my opposition as a member of the New Hampshire legislature, which infuriated the governor to no end. He discharged me from the militia and is a justice of the peace. It mattered not. Soon the governor lost control of the colony. He dissolved the colonial legislature and fled the colony for a warship. He first sailed to Boston and then the Isle Shoals. In his absence, the Provincial Congress of New Hampshire convened, and I was once again elected to Congress and appointed as a colonel of the militia. In 1776, I was appointed as a member of the New Hampshire Committee of Safety. I first took my seat in Congress in September 1775 and worked diligently along with my fellow delegates to defend our liberties. I spoke little in Congress, but participated in several committees. All this work undermined my health. Still, I was most dedicated to the cause, and when the Declaration of Independence was put to a vote, the Congress started with the most northern state and proceeded south down the eastern seaboard. That meant New Hampshire was called on first to cast its vote. I was the first man to vote yay for Richard Henry Lee's resolution of independence and for the Declaration. When I signed the Declaration on August 2nd, New Hampshire was again called upon to sign it, and which was my great honor. I chose to sign the document at the top of the far right column. Now, Judge Warren has chosen to read the signatures of the document left to right, which is natural. But in truth, he should have chosen me first. No matter, we can forgive the judge for his uh, judgment. I do have one amendment to which I just relayed. John Hancock, the president of the Congress, of course, is said by almost all scholars, to have been the first person to affix his John Hancock, all puns intended, 
and the engrossed version of the Declaration of Independence on August 2nd, which would mean that I would have signed it second. Oh, did I? A mystery you can only solve in Nirvana. Soon after signing the Great Charter of Liberty, specifically on August 16, 1776, I joined the New Hampshire Militia and Continental Troops when they battled General John Bulgan in Bennington, New York. This is where the flag with the 76 and the Blue Union originated. Dubbed the Bennington Battle Flag, today it is celebrated during Patriot Week. In that same battle, American General John Stark used the phrase, Live free or die! Yes, he was the hero of that battle, and his phrase now appears on New Hampshire's, um, what do you call it? Oh, yes, your car license plates. This battle of Bennington was vital for another independent reason. It was a victory that eventually led to the British Army's defeat at Saratoga. I was re-elected to Congress in 1778 when the vote for the Articles of Confederation arose that year. I was again the first vote in favor. The next year, I was appointed Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas, as well as the Muster Master of New Hampshire's troops. In 1782, I was elevated to the Supreme Court, and then in 1788, I became the Chief Justice. Although I had no formal training in the law, my state had such confidence in my abilities that I was pleased to serve in these judicial positions. I served in the New Hampshire Convention that ratified the federal constitution and was a strong proponent for its adoption, which held not inconsiderable sway with other delegates. This was vital since New Hampshire was the ninth state to ratify the constitution. If you know your constitution, that means you know that that made the constitution effective. In 1789, the state elected me as one of the first United States senators. However, I declined the appointment. Some assert my ill health precluded me from traveling to New York City, but others posit that I'd already been elected as the president of New Hampshire. In any event, I was at some point, in fact, elected as the president of New Hampshire and occupied that office until 1793. I was then elected the first governor of the state under the new federal constitution, but I had to relinquish that position after a short time. Ill health required me to resign at the beginning of 1794. I was so looking forward to a long and peaceful retirement, but the Almighty had entirely different plans. I left these earthly obligations on May 19, 1795. I was but 66 years old, although there are some that estimate that I was 65. You could ask me in the happy hunting ground. I was a common man. My family was not in the highest echelons of society. I was of modest means. I was told I had a quick and brilliant mind and possessed sound judgment. My mind and merits carried me to the high stations of American society. In addition to my public service, I was the founder and first president of the New Hampshire Medical Society. I was married in 1754, and we had a dozen children. Very fruitful indeed. Like many of my fellow delegates, I lost my royal positions and risked my life in battle to maintain my sacred honor. I was more than willing to make the ultimate sacrifice and left this world with my most sacred honor intact. I am most gratified to introduce to you William Whipple. Well, with much gratitude, Mr. Bartlett. And in truth, I am William Whipple. I happen to love my name, having that alliteration of my first and last name starting with the same letter. I've actually been conversating with the recently arrived Mr. Stan Lee of Marvel fame, and I'm urging him to make me a superhero, like Peter Parker, Bruce Bannon, or Stephen Strange. 
The only double W superhero I know of is Warren Worthington, the famed X-Man known as the Angel. I like him, but I think I'm deserving of similar notoriety, even though my wings were earned after I passed on. But I digress. I am William Whipple, and was the oldest son of my father, William Whipple. I was born on January 14, 1730, in Kittery, Maine. We lived near the ocean, and my mother's grandfather was a wealthy shipmaker, and she inherited his fortune, and so my father and I benefited from this quite nicely. I was enrolled in a respectable local school for several years, but I never took part in university. The ocean flowing in my blood, I labored on a merchant vessel. At first as a cabin boy, and then advanced to become a ship's captain by the age of 21. Soon, I was running a trading business over the oceans. I traveled and traded in the West Indies, Africa, and Europe, and built my own fortune. Now, true, I am most ashamed and stained with having engaged and profited in the slave trade for a short period of time. But eventually, with age and maturity, and not an inconsiderate fortune made, my sea lust was satiated and I settled in a land-based trading business when I was 29 years of age. Now my brother, Joseph Whipple, and I located our business in Portsmouth. I fattened my fortune and retired from business at just 42 years old. I was known to have a quick and discriminating mind, and yet was humble and friendly. I was also understood to be a man of intelligence, well, genius, really, along with an impeccable character. This meant something in those days. And I was elected to several offices in my hometown. When the troubles with England began, I was an early and outspoken adversary of tyranny. I was a member of the Provincial Council and served as a member of the Provincial Committee of Public Safety. I was elected to the Second Continental Congress in 1776 and held that office until September 1789. But perhaps my most important contribution was as a superintendent of the commissary and quartermaster departments, which operations needed serious reform, and my leadership put them on the right footing, which was essential since my duty was to supply the army. Now, I voted for independence and the declaration, and I signed the declaration on August 2nd. I signed right under my fellow New Hampshire delegate, Mr. Bartlett. So, I was the third person to sign the declaration, or the second, depending on whether you believe that Hancock actually signed it first. In 1777, I was appointed as a Brigadier General by the Assembly of New Hampshire. As more than one historian has noted, I was a major workhorse in the military, fighting in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and then I served at the Battle of Saratoga, commanding New Hampshire's troops. Now, this, of course, was a monumental victory. The first time American troops decisively defeated British regular troops in a major open battle. It paved the way for France to become our ally. And from there, the English Empire was on the downward slope to defeat. Because of my exemplary service at the battle... I had the privilege of being one of three American generals to negotiate the Articles of Capitulation. 
and I led the captured English troops to their prison camp on Winter Hill near Boston. Now, as an aside, in June 1777, I had the great privilege of presenting orders to Captain John Paul Jones, giving him the command of the legendary ranger. Well, with your esteemed indulgence, there is one more short tale I am compelled to share. I had an enslaved man, Prince, who had come from Africa a few years before, and he accompanied me in my military pursuits. As we escorted the captured English troops into Winter Hill, I remarked to him, Prince, we may be called into action, in which case I trust you'll behave like a man of courage and fight bravely for the country. Well, Prince courageously looked at me and replied, I have no wish to fight and no inducement, but had I my liberty, I would fight in defense of the country to the last drop of my blood. I responded, Well, Prince, from this moment, you are free. Now, the next year in 1778, I led some New Hampshire troops in the field under General Sullivan with the hope of freeing Rhode Island from British occupation. One morning, I was having breakfast with the other officers in a home that we were utilizing as our headquarters when a British cannonball that had been fired from over three quarters of a mile away tore through the home. It had already killed a horse on its journey and it smashed the leg of my brigadier major. It was a devastating injury. His leg needed to be amputated right there on the spot. Had the cannonball's trajectory been altered just a few feet? Well, I'd have been killed right then and there. Later, I was elected to the New Hampshire General Assembly in 1780 and several times thereafter. In 1782, I accepted a cursed position as the state's financial agent. That is, I was the receiver of public monies for the state of New Hampshire. In other words, I was the head tax collector. Yeah, well, this was a very difficult and thankless task. And by 1784, I decided to leave the position due to my failing health. Still, the state of New Hampshire vested me with another public office, judge of the Superior Court of Judicature. I held that position from 1784 to 1785, but my health was seriously deteriorating. I had intense, wrecking chest pains and fainting spells. While riding the circuit in 1785, I was so weak I had to retire to my home. On November 28, 1785, I was greeted by the great divine. I left behind my darling wife whom I married in 1767. And I'm sorry to say that her only child died as an infant. I'm buried in a cemetery in Portsmouth, as is my old friend and comrade-in-arms, Prince, a fitting resting place for both of us. I lived up to my oath. I put my life on the line several times and cheated death during the American Revolution. I defended our freedom and secured my sacred honor. And with that, I am most pleased to introduce to you Mr. Samuel Adams. Huzzah, Mr. Whipple, huzzah! I am Samuel Adams, and I am just delighted to meet you, even in this disembodied state. 
I was born in Quincy, Massachusetts, on September 22, 1722. I was one of a dozen children. My neighborhood knew how to produce talented and influential men. It burst into existence, Mr. John Hancock, my second cousin, President John Adams, and my second cousin, once removed, President John Quincy Adams. But me, I am a unique historical phenomenon. <laughs> you can trust me on that. I was descended from pilgrims. My father was wealthy and served many years in the Massachusetts Assembly. One of his business ventures was a brewery. As a young lad, I was gifted the nickname Sammy the Molster because I was often spotted on Boston streets lugging sacks of malt on my back. I attended an exemplary preparatory school, the Boston Latin School, and then Harvard University. I was a superb student. I earned my bachelor's degree when just 18 in 1749. I wrote a thesis to gain my master's degree in 1743 on a topic for which I would live true my entire life. Ready? All right, then, here is the title. Whether it be lawful to resist the supreme magistrate if the Commonwealth cannot be otherwise preserved. Uh, is that a look of puzzlement? Fine. I'll make more comfortable to your modern ears that archaic language. Do we have an unalienable right to revolution against a tyrant? The answer? Yes! 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 After Harvard, following my father's wishes, I began the study of law, but soon abandoned that project for something a bit more financial. I worked as a clerk in the counting house of the illustrious merchant Thomas Cushing. Thinking I had gotten the hang of this business of business, my father gave me money to start my own enterprise. I opened it with great anticipation, and it, well, to my mortification, it, uh, it flopped. I wasn't all that good at business, after all. I had plain manners, was polite, and definitely not ostentatious. I was known to have a quick wit, keen insight, and integrity of the highest order. My beloved father was taken by the angel of death when I was 25 years old and I was burdened with being responsible for attempting to maintain his estate. This I did not relish. Our brewery soon went out of business, and my lack of skill with finances meant my estate soon vanished as well. I tried my hand at tax collecting, and like my dear Thomas Paine, I was just dreadful. I could not meet my quotas, following behind 800 pounds sterling in my collections. My debts mounted, and creditors hounded me for the rest of my life. I lived in the home I inherited, but due to lack of finances and, well, inattention, it fell into a partial state of disrepair. Our family got by basically due to the generosity of my friends. A wondrous feature about where I am now is no need for money and unending flow of free beer. Ha <laughs> ha! Huzzah! My true love and life's calling was politics. I was consumed with it, even in my youth. My mind raced with political theories and practical tactics. I loved it. In 1763, 
the people of Massachusetts received word that England was thinking about imposing taxes on the colonies to pay the huge war debt incurred in the French and Indian War. The people of Boston appointed a committee to express our concerns about this proposed course of action to our colonial government. I not only served on the committee, <laughs> I drafted the instructions. Putting aside their eloquence and passion, these instructions were very important to the future of America and the world. Observe, it was the first recorded public document that outright argued that Parliament did not have the power to tax the people of the colonies. It also was the first such document to suggest that the colonies should establish a regular communication between each other to create a unified effort of resistance. Take a listen to some highlights of these instructions. <clears throat> if our trade may be taxed, why not our lands? Why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or use? This, we conceive, annihilates our charter rights to govern and tax ourselves. It strikes at our British privilege, which, as we have never forfeited, we hold in common with our fellow subjects who are natives of Britain. If taxes are laid upon us in any shape, without our having a legal representation where they are laid, we are reduced from the charter of free subjects to the state of tributary slaves. Two years later, I was elected to the Massachusetts Assembly called the General Court. I fiercely admonished British attempts to oppress our people and violate our unalienable rights and became the leader of the opposition to royal repression. I became clerk of the Assembly, served on nearly all of its committees, helped draft almost every report, and commanded great respect and influence in the general court. I wrote many essays and designed various plans of defiance and was the first to propose a Congress to meet in New York when I drafted what has been dubbed the Massachusetts Circular. At the same time, I was a leader of the Sons of Liberty in Boston, along with Joseph Warren and John Hancock. Paul Revere, James Otis, Benedict Arnold, and Dr. Benjamin Rush were also heavily involved. The Sons were a band of brothers who took to the streets to defend our liberties. We harassed stamp collectors, burned officials in effigy, destroyed the homes of royal officials, and held the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> That's just the Cliff Notes version. Not caring much for business or finance, I personally had little in the way of material goods. Plainly stated, I was poor. The British sensed a weakness and tried to bribe me with a high-paying office. Governor Hutchinson knew this was a fruitless endeavor, remarking that I would never be conciliated by any office or gift whatsoever. Still, Hutchinson followed the instructions of his masters in London, and I, of course, scoffed at the offer. <laughs> this same approach was tried a few more times over the years, met again and again with disdain. <laughs> no one, and I mean no one, was better at making a speech on the streets 
to rile up a crowd into a fever pitch to take action. Trust me, I've competed with the best of them up here, including Mark Antony and Cicero, and I cannot be bested. Maybe some ties, <laughs> but not bested. Well, in any event, the night after the Boston Massacre, I brought the crowd to a fever pitch, and we, well, let's say we kindly persuaded the governor to remove the British troops from the streets of Boston to ensure public tranquility. In 1772, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia and I both separately, but almost simultaneously, suggested a system of committees of correspondence, which was vital to unifying colonial opposition to British repression. After this, a certain Colonel Fenton approached me with now Governor Gage's offer to buy me off with anything I wanted, and with the threat that if I didn't accept, I could very well be shipped overseas to England to face a treason trial. Well, when Colonel Fenton completed his colloquy, I responded that he tell Governor Gage that my peace has long since been made with the King of Kings, and that it is the advice of Samuel Adams to him no longer to insult the feelings of an already exasperated people. Governor Gage then showed his true colors. He issued a proclamation promising to pardon anyone who had before opposed English tyranny, with the exceptions of Mr. John Hancock and me. I was most pleased with this high distinction. Truth be known, this tactic completely backfired. John Hancock and I became even more famous and popular, and the people were enraged. <laughs> I loved it! Huzzah, indeed! In fact, I had much to do with the outbreak of fighting. Lexington and Concord? Well, those fateful shots happened in part because British troops tried to arrest me and John Hancock. They failed, and instead they sparked the shot heard round the world, which was the beginning of the end for British tyranny in America. If you don't know the details, check out episode 40 of this podcast, for goodness sake. Having been the first person to suggest something like it, I was pleased to be elected to the First Continental Congress in 1774. Because of my fragile financial state, my clothes were, well, threadbare and ragged. Some of my fine friends took up a small collection and purchased me a brand new suit to appear at the opening of the Congress. Before I arrived there, I helped organize the Massachusetts Provincial Convention that adopted fellow Son of Liberty Joseph Warren's Suffolk Resolves. These resolves basically declared Massachusetts in a state of rebellion. Oh, by the way, Judge Warren, your ancestor says keep up the great work. <laughs> Huzzah! Of course, I was a strong proponent of resolution for independence, voted for the declaration, and was gratified to sign it on August 2nd, 1776. I don't like to puff myself up, but renowned historian Mr. John Lossing explained my crucial role in our independency. And probably no man did more toward bringing about the American Revolution and in effectuating the independence of the colonies than Samuel 
Adams. He was the first to assert boldly those political thoughts upon which rested the whole superstructure of our Confederacy. He was the first to act in support of those truths. And when, in the Congress, independence was proposed, and the timid faltered, and the over-prudent hesitated, the voice of Samuel Adams was ever loudest in denunciations on temporizing policy, and also in the utterance of strong encouragement to the faint-hearted. Now I knew my place. Despite my robust support, I stepped back during the final lead-up to Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence and the Declaration of Independence. My second cousin, John Adams, was much more polished and a more convincing speaker for our cause to the delegates. After all, he was a lawyer and talked their language. I was a man of the street and behind-the-scenes plotting. To the Congress, John's soaring rhetoric was magnetic. He did a fine, fine job by Jove. During our desperate times after the Declaration, I always showed a happy face. I chided others who were expressing deep concerns and apprehension about the Revolution to stop whimpering. In addition, I managed to unify the various factions of Congress and even within New England. My commitment to freedom was unparalleled. One time I explained... I should advise persisting in our struggle for liberty, though it were revealed from heaven that 999 were to perish, and only one of a thousand were to survive and retain his liberty. One such freeman must possess more virtue and enjoy more happiness than a thousand slaves, and let him propagate his like and transmit to them what he hath so nobly preserved. Thankfully, it came nowhere near that. I served in Congress through 1781. I helped draft and signed the Articles of Confederation. I served in the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention from 1779 to 1780. When I retired from Congress, I joined the new Massachusetts State Senate, holding office from 1781 to 1788 and serving as the presiding officer the entire time. I became lieutenant governor under John Hancock and held that office from 1789 to 1793. After our dear Mr. Hancock went to his eternal glory, I myself became governor from 1794 to 1797. I refused to attend the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Like Patrick Henry, I very much feared that the liberties we gained in the American Revolution could be lost to a new Constitution. However, I came around when the Federalists finally agreed to add a Bill of Rights. James Madison, <laughs> after all, was one smart politician and brilliant constitutional theorist. I met the Supreme Judge of the World, on October 2nd, 1803, I was 82. I was highly religious in my life, very dedicated to my faith. Thankfully, I was not disappointed. It is bliss here. <laughs> Just bliss. Historian Charles August Goodrich highlighted 
my importance. Among those who signed the Declaration of Independence and were conspicuous in the Revolution, there existed a great diversity. Like the luminaries of heaven, each contributed his portion of influence. But in the constellation of great men, which adorned that era, few shone with more brilliancy or exercised a more brilliant influence than Samuel Adams. I am most flattered. My beloved wife Elizabeth and I had two children, and a few years after her spirit ascended, I married yet another Elizabeth. As you have heard, I risked my life, lost my fortune, and repeatedly maintained my sacred honor. I did this to help America gain its independence, which was necessary to protect our unalienable rights. Now it is up to you. Fight, I say. Fight for America. I am yours, Samuel Adams. Thank you, Mr. Adams. Some key takeaways from this episode. 56 delegates to Congress signed the Declaration. Among those delegates were Lewis Morris, Richard Stockton, John Witherspoon, Francis Hopkinson, John Hart, Abraham Clark, Josiah Bartlett, William Whipple, and Samuel Adams. To fulfill the first principles of free and just government and achieve independence, the signers of the Declaration of Independence mutually pledged to each other and the new nation their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. As we learn from this episode, some of those signers risked their lives by being hunted for committing treason or fighting in the field of the American Revolution. Some lost their sons in battle, were imprisoned, and had their fortunes ravaged. But they maintained their sacred honor. We are the heirs of that sacred honor. Don't tarnish it. Embrace it. Please join us for our next general episode when we finish our series on the signers of the Declaration by exploring the remaining 10 men to have signed it. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Thanks to our two other terrific Patriot narrators, Mike Gerard Skinechny, who is our sound designer and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett. Proud father, I mean owner, of an amazing new recreational vehicle. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about our first principles, key documents, and speeches, patriots, and flags. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. 
Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.